welcome to Healthcare Du Jour, where we dish up and digest the latest in healthcare. For the next 30 minutes, sit back as we bring you insight, commentary, and discussion on trending topics to the table, all expertly served up by our host and his guests. Healthcare Du Jour is brought to you by Carium, the telehealth platform enabling healthcare's digital transformation, helping you care for people within the fabric of their daily lives. Now here's your host, Matt Fisher. Welcome back, and thank you for joining as we dive into the hottest topics in healthcare. I'm your host, Matt Fisher. On the menu today is Dr. Joel Diamond, co-founder and chief medical officer at To Be Precise. Dr. Diamond, welcome to the show. Matt, thank you for having me today. So what I always like to do before getting into the main part of the discussion is give my guest a chance to provide more of an introduction in terms of who they are and what they do. So Dr. Diamond, the floor is yours. Well, thank you. I am the uh, chief medical officer, as you said, for To Be Precise, a company we started uh, about six years ago. Um, and been involved in medical informatics for a good part of my career. But the probably more important part of my career is I've been a family doctor, continue to be a family doctor. Um, and it pains me to say, because uh, I'm going on my 31st year now doing that, which seems incredibly old because I'm taking care of uh, grandchildren of patients that I took care of when they were uh, younger as well. But it continues to be an important part of the work that I do and both really enhance each other. So what kind of first got you into wanting to become a doctor and then, you know, transitioning over into the technology side of things along with uh, actual practice? Yeah, thank you. Um, well, it depends. I, I, I usually have uh, three answers to that question. Um, the first one is the cute one that sounds nice for um, grandparents. The other one is probably more realistic. And the third one somewhere in between. The first one is kind of true, but when I was a little kid and I read church, Curious George goes to the hospital. I was so intrigued with the fact that he swallowed this puzzle piece and they took this x-ray and you could see the puzzle piece in his stomach and then he had surgery and they they took it out. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. But uh, the truth is I grew up in a very small town in upstate New York. My friends were, uh, my parents were friends with one of the two surgeons in town um, that would often come over and late night I would sneak down and listen to these incredibly hilarious stories that the surgeon would tell about his exploits in a small town emergency room, which were, were funny. Um, and the, the truth of the matter is my mother was a lab technician in our local hospital. And I spent a lot of time um, hanging out there for various reasons as I grew up. And I was just fascinated with looking under, they actually looked at blood under microscope in those days and got to do that and was very fascinated with science and medicine. And that probably was a, a big part of my career. Yeah, no, I, I will definitely agree with you that uh, physicians end up with some very good stories because I, my <laughs> wife is a doctor. So when we have discussions or, around the dinner table, mine have no chance of ever competing with what she <laughs> That's great. So kind of, you know, I think now, what's your focus now, actually? You know, kind of what is, um, you know, your focal point to be precise and, you know, what what has you most fascinated at the moment? Yeah, so as I said, I started out in family medicine. Um, I'm not really a technologist um, in any way, but I was very interested um, in the late 80s, early 90s of how to improve um, quality in the practice and electronic medical records um, were particularly interesting to me um, and was an early adopter of those in our practice. Um, what I did at the time, just because I was somewhat of a nerd, was I kept a lot of data on what we were doing in terms of improving quality around diabetic care and saving time and some other things. And um, people asked me to give lectures on this and, and write some articles on it. And I found myself being a quote unquote expert um, that I had huge imposter syndrome um, at the time. 
but very much got involved in that, um, spent some time at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center implementing electronic medical records um, there, and then uh, went on uh, to join a company that was involved in interoperability um, early on. Um, so was interested in how data gets to physicians, not just um, uh, the data itself, but how we make that real and, and what some of those barriers are. Um, and that really kind of led to what's happening now is this explosion in genetic information. Um, and while the science has progressed dramatically, the ability to get that data to the point of care in an understandable way um, in some ways has gone back to the stone age of, of paper. Most of the genetic data today still comes back to a doctor as a document, a PDF or a Word document, which just seems like a giant backward step. I think there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and maybe let's take one of the first stepping stones, which is when you say genetic data, what are you actually referring to? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, it could mean a lot of different things. Um, it might be a single test that I, I'm interested in. Um, I uh, This patient has cystic fibrosis, and I want to do the test to confirm that, like any other laboratory test. Um, it might be a single test um, or series of tests because I want to know if somebody is susceptible to cancer based on their family history, like breast cancer and the, the BRCA gene, as an example. It might be a panel of tests. Um, I present, a patient presents with some symptoms, and there's many diseases which it could be. Um, there are some genetic diseases in that differential diagnosis, and I sort of cast a wider net with a panel. Um, I might be a couple seeking prenatal um, counseling um, and risk for my child having genetic diseases and having some uh, uh, prenatal um, genetic karyotype screening, as an example. Um, I might now move into something called a full exome. That's the, um, the large part of our, our genetic data. Not all of it, but the part that actually codes for stuff we know about. So a really big swath of our, of our genome. And then finally, there's our full genome. So that project, the Human Genome Project, which was finished in 2003, we now can um, sequence your entire genome, and people are now doing that um, in the uh, neonatal ICU unit, for instance, um, or as part of other genetic testing. And the cost of that has come down so dramatically that that becomes a more um, practical test. Um, and then there's lots of other stuff that people are familiar with. Uh, COVID certainly um, brought the word PCR to everybody's vocabulary. So it's a genetic test that we're identifying the DNA of a particular virus. It's how we helped diagnose Lyme disease or hepatitis um, in the past, but that certainly has come to light. Um, and then one of the biggest areas is the DNA that comes from cancers, which is different than the DNA that we uh, were given by both our parents. So unique DNA of the cancer cells that have a huge role in how we have changed the treatment of cancer nowadays. And most people are familiar with some of that. And then some of the emerging areas like microbiome, the, the DNA of the bacteria that reside within us that may play a role in health and disease as well. So um, it, was a, it was a good question with many, many answers today. And I guess when you're talking about all those different aspects, you know, it seems like the ability to identify or run a test has greatly expanded. When you get the results back, you know, it has the, I guess, the clinical relevance or the clinical understanding of what the, what information you're getting back from the test also kept pace with the ability to run the test itself? So that's, that's a big problem um, because there's still a belief, even amongst very smart physicians, that genetic tests are 
black and white, yes, no, they're a binary answer. You get a CBC and it has a result, your white count is, has a value to it. Um, that may be true for certain tests. The PCR test for COVID is a perfect example. I have COVID or I don't have COVID. Um, the problem is that with other types of DNA uh, that we're getting back, that there's an interpretive part of that. So I may have a variant um, of a, a particular cancer biopsy or within my own germline, I might have a variant. But what does that mean? And how does that keep up with the science right now? Because we're learning more. A lot of what gets reported back, I mentioned doing a full genome before. Um, if you had that done, you'd find out that you have a lot of things called variants of unknown significance. means that something's abnormal, but we don't know if it causes disease or not. I will tell you that next year, one of those variants will be significant. And the year after that, another one will be significant. We'll learn whether that variant is benign or possibly um, disease causing or definitely disease causing as an example. So the knowledge piece of this applied to that data um, is a very big and important part of this that a lot of people ignore right now. So and kind of what are some of the ways that knowledge is increased to be able to help enhance the uh, the ability to interpret when, as you said, you go get into the realm where it's more interpretive as opposed as opposed to black and white. Yeah, and it, one of the problems too is is uh, the traditional approach of laboratories with sort of these binary um, results to this. Um, so, for instance, um, if a patient has cancer and a, the biopsy of that cancer is sent to a lab that tests the somatic DNA of the, of that cancer, um, it will come back with an interpreted result. The problem is that that interpretation is based on science we have today. Hopefully that patient um, is surviving their cancer because of, of, of new changes that we had, but they go on maybe to have recurrence of that disease and new, new treatment. And looking back at that original sample, the interpretation was based on the science that was done at that time. So oftentimes the interpretation of the laboratory test um, is decoupled. Um, from it. And that's one of the problems. So if you certainly just report the results on a PDF uh, piece of paper, um, there's no way of taking that discrete data and running it through another engine um, to reinterpret it, as the case may be. Um, another example is, and probably the most important part is when we check your DNA, um, there's a, a axiom that says test once, query often. I mean, your DNA doesn't really change. It, it does for some other reasons and, and mutations and things like that. But for the most part, the two sets copies of, of DNA you got from each of your parents is the same through your whole life. And if you had your genome done at day one, we should be able to look at that through the rest of your lifetime and re-examine it and based on new science as, as we go through, through life. And that's the important part is how do we couple that with the original test that was done um, with them and the technology of the testing originally, um, what portion of the DNA they reported it on, all these become a informatics problem that now adds to the complexity of what we're talking about. And I guess from that perspective, how quickly is that knowledge developing? You know, because as you said, if you say you got a test run today, obviously, as you said, it'll be run and interpreted based on what's known today. But you know, if we if you fast forward in like one, two years, you know, what what is that time frame for development? Or is it just very variable depending on what, you know, depending on what you're looking at? Well, and some of it's not necessarily the knowledge of the 
genetics. I'll give you an example. Let's, let's say we're looking at genetics specifically involved in metabolism drugs, pharmacogenomics, a big area right now. Um, and so I test you and I say, here's the, the interpreted results for all the drugs in the world. Well, that may not change. It may. The science will change over time for sure. And that's another piece of this. But guess what? Next year, there'll be 200 new drugs on the market. And how do you know if those drugs apply to the test that you already had? So not only is there new science on the DNA side of this, but there's new diagnosis of diseases. There's new concepts of diseases. There's new drugs on the market. There's new classification of cancers, et cetera, et cetera. So it's both sides of the equation that need to be merged together to be able to have that understanding and then really ultimately be available for clinical decision support. And then is there also individualized variation that that would also be a factor? Meaning? Meaning kind of like if you, have, you know, Will each person respond or um, demonstrate a different uh, reaction? To sure, then that's a it's a great question, Matt. I guess it it, it belies another issue, which is um, a, a belief that a lot of people have that well, I have this gene, and it, it's uh, now I'm a ticking time bomb. I'm going to get this disease, and of course that's not the case. There are some genes that are highly likely that you'll develop um, a, a, a disease. There are single changes a mutation in, in your genome, a single point that codes for a terrible cancer or cystic fibrosis or things like that. Um, there are other things that code for regions of genes that help regulate our chances to, to fight cancers from our own body. Um, the BRCA gene is similar to that. So if you have that gene, the likelihood of you getting breast and ovarian cancer is extraordinarily high, but not 100%. Um, and then we're understanding what we call polygenic risk, which is there are huge effects of the environment um, on us um, that combined with some genetic defects we have may in fact um, play a role in whether we get a disease or not. And then there are other things. We may have the potential for a heart arrhythmia based on a genetic defect that we have, but it may never show itself unless I take a particular drug that um, uh, in fact, uh, it increases the QT interval of my heart in, on an EKG. So all those pieces, you are correct, individual variation, it is not a one-size-fits-all model. So kind of thinking about all that, and also for those of you just joining, I'm talking with Dr. Joel Diamond of TB Precise, and we've been talking about the growth of genetic data that's available and testing that can occur. Maybe let's go back to kind of the other, you know, branch that you were talking about up front, Dr. Diamond, which is not just that we have the genetic information, but how do we get it actually into the hands of physicians um, yeah. and other clinicians? So kind of can you maybe like go over the basics of what's in place right now, and then also where you see their opportunities for improvement. So yeah, as I alluded to um, in your earlier question, uh, we talked about the fact that we've sort of taken a big giant step backwards in the information technology part of this. So when I got interested in electronic medical records um, uh, a few decades ago, um, physicians in my hospital were very, very angry at the thought that they would have to look at a computer to get laboratory results. Um, a friend of mine um, who was a very good physician actually told me patients would die because he didn't have the paper results in the chart and it would, quote unquote, be my fault. Um, which is absurd nowadays to think about going to a chart and looking at a piece of paper was somehow more efficient than being able to access that data. 
um, anywhere. So here we are now in 2022, and we have genetic data that's for the most part, the vast majority is coming back as a PDF that's scanned in as a document somewhere. Um, and one is just access to that, that data alone, but because it's not discrete, we have no ability to trend that data. We have no ability to um, couple that in a data model with clinical information um, and then be able to do predictive analysis to be able to associate certain um, presenting symptoms a patient may have with the known genetic risk they have. You're always going to have to kind of cross correlate in your brain and go look and see somewhere in this, let alone if you could even find it. There's even a bigger problem than that is um, that this genetic data that's coming back in all sorts of different ways in the hospital um, is put in a file folder in the electronic medical record somewhere under other organizations may not even have the ability to track who's ordering a test and in, in from where um, with that, let alone how much and be able to get their hands around it. There may be a very one-off test that the Department of Endocrinology may do for thyroid cancer, as an example, um, which um, is coming back as paper somewhere and is being ordered um, through a portal somewhere. So we've sort of got a fundamental informatics problem in, in that sense that we need to overcome. And that's you know, it seems like that's the most basic problem. But once we could overcome that, we have that data, what can we do with it? Can we harmonize that data with the, what we call phenotypic data, the clinical data that's always changing, right? Every single day, you present with a fever, you present with chest pain, you present with symptoms, or you have signs on physical examination. Can we say, wait, is there a genetic piece of data that may explain some of this? Or are some of these symptoms consistent something with something that a genetic test might be helpful? So we've got to be able to couple those things in a in a, a logical way with a data model, and the only way to do that is have that be discrete data, like anything else that we do in science. And kind of what are some of the development steps? Although I think you were starting to hint at it, um, that would be required to allow it to be discrete. And and I guess maybe to jump the gun a little bit, is it fair to say that part of that is to actually have discrete fields as a standard within an EHR, because I think based on how you're describing it, those may, may or most likely don't exist currently. Either they don't exist, or uh, as someone once told me several decades ago in medicine, the only problem with standards is there's too damn many of them, um, which is the case. So we have SNOMAD and ICD and, and lots of other things to describe diseases. Um, there are developing but changing um, nomenclatures for cancer, for DNA, for the technology of how that information gets into the EMR, whether we're using HL7 or FHIR or SMART or, or these other things. Um, and because of the lack of standards or multiple standards, again, we're still seeing some of those same problems. So to have a sort of Rosetta Stone, um, a, a model where you can... Um, take this genetic data and clinical data and knowledge and harmonize it and then be able to present that at the point of care is a particular challenge. That's the one that, to be precise, set out to solve. Yeah, and it seems maybe just because I have Lord of the Rings on the mind, it's, you know, you need one standard to rule them all. <laughs> there you go. That's exactly right. And unfortunately, we will never have that. So you know, we're kind of, I think we're talking about kind of the reporting and, you know, to some degree, making sure that you're getting the right reporting based on which particular you know, diagnosis you might be pursuing. You know, so from that perspective, you know, how do you go about sorting that 
in, or does that more happen in the back end? And it's that goes into the design of the process. Yeah, and and I think the 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 question you're alluding to is is what is it that the clinician actually needs at the point of care? Um, if I'm prescribing my third antidepressant for a patient, and I think that they're just not responding to antidepressants, and maybe I need to refer them for some more aggressive treatment, um, I would say it was highly appropriate to make sure that they had a pharmacogenomic test because the drugs that they may have previously been treated on, which is frequently the case, they were poor metabolizers um, of those drugs or rapid metabolizers, and they were ineffective at the doses that I gave. So I would like something to tell me at that point, gee, did you ever consider doing this particular test? Um, If a baby is in the neonatal ICU unit with a lot of unusual symptoms, we know there's something wrong with this child is having seizures and failure to thrive and some other things. Um, Studies have shown that doing full genomes on those patients earlier can help them get to a diagnosis um, much, much sooner, reduce the length of time that they're in the NICU, and also get them on the right drugs that stop their seizures at a very, very early date. Or, as we alluded to earlier, I might want to find risk for populations. What are my patients at most risk for developing breast cancer or colon cancer? And by the way, can I de-risk some of those patients um, who say, well, I have a strong family history of colon cancer. Well, you know, you had one grandfather who died at 90 of colon cancer, probably is not a genetic risk, but can we better assess that and not have people get colonoscopies every three years because of a perceived risk as an example um, of that? And then as we move into polygenic risk, um, right now, for instance, we treat an awful lot of people with statins to prevent heart attacks. Um, could we be better on that? Are there patients that have a higher risk for heart disease and be more aggressive and, and include those and convince them to take a statin as an example? And by the same token, are there patients with marginally elevated uh, 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 cholesterols and maybe their risk for heart disease is much less and we don't have to be so adamant in, in prescribing some of these drugs. Um, these will be questions that we answer in the future. Yeah, and I guess as you go to answer those questions, I suspect there needs to be you know, studies and other research in the background given, you know, you often hear medicine described as being evidence-based. So it's, you know, and I think it's also, I hear, you know, even once you have the evidence, it still takes years to actually get it implemented as a new standard. Yeah. Which I guess from, you know, one perspective makes sense because you wouldn't want to make an, a change without fully appreciating what's going to happen. But at the same time, maybe it's delaying you know, recognizing that beneficial impact from something where you do have mount, you know, growing evidence, even if it's not as you know, long-standing evidence as might be preferable. Yeah, and I think there's a couple of good examples of that. On one side of the equation is pharmacogenomics, where I mentioned uh, many of my colleagues still say, "Yeah, that seems cool, but it's not the standard of of care yet." And yet, there's a growing body of evidence that it's the standard of care. There's a national organization, CPIC, that oversees. Um, new drugs and their metabolism based on um, genes. There are certain drugs like uh, Plavix that we give to a a cardiac patient that we know roughly 20% of the population is not going to respond to that drug. And there have been lawsuits because um, people took the the wrong drug uh, for for a condition um, with that. So evolving standard of care becomes very, very clear. 
Um, cancers on the other side of the equation, you know, a decade ago, the idea that we would use molecular-based diagnosis to classify a disease and give a drug um, that's not necessarily based on where the anatomical site of that cancer is, but it's really based on the DNA of that cancer and then have dramatic results um, in, in cure rates or remission rates of, of cancer based on that DNA finding. Um, now certainly becomes the standard of care for certain diseases, non-small cell lung cancer, um, as an example, or, or, or breast cancer or colon cancer um, with this. So we're seeing this emerging standard of care. Um, the problem is that, in, as in many things, um, technology such as um, machines, lasers, imaging, there's a very, very quick adoption of those. Information technology, there always is a gap, and there are many reasons for that. You know, genetics is something that was taught in medical school for most doctors as, you know, a two-week part of the curriculum, and that was kind of it. Um, and then look how much has changed in, in the uh, 30 years since I've been practicing medicine as an example of that. So that knowledge gap is, is also contributing to this. Yeah, I guess from the training perspective that you just raised, it's, you know, how at the same time as you know all these new means of intervention are being developed and the understanding is increasing how do you or how or when do you actually incorporate it into the training because you could theoretically teach about one aspect or you know about one current understanding but then it, the you know the the knowledge base quickly expands beyond that so it's kind of just goes into also understanding that, you know, it's called practice medicine for a reason because you're constantly <laughs> evolving and growing in your understanding and utilization of the surrounding body of evidence. Yeah, um, you know, I, I have to be careful as a family practitioner, as a generalist um, who recertifies and takes his boards um, on a regular basis, um, I, I don't have much tolerance for people say I can't keep up with science. That's what we do. Um, so I do take a, a somewhat, and I'll admit, arrogant approach to that. Having said that, um, one of the problems is how we present this data. Pharmacogenomics is a perfect example. I don't really think a doctor needs to understand star alleles and CYP2D6 and uh, other things to really um, make this information useful. In fact, one of the ways that we present this data at the point of care is showing drugs and having an icon next to them as being red, yellow, or green. Um, for a lot of doctors, that's good enough. Show me the green drug, and I'll pick that one off the list, um, as opposed to just picking out of a hat. Uh, and, oh, the red one's bad. Show me a green one as an example. That's okay. I don't have a problem with that. They don't need to have a deeper understanding of pharmacogenomics or drug metabolism, et cetera, although it, it would be nice if they had a little bit, but that's okay. They don't need to read the details of why that test was done and, and um, all the interpreted results. Um, so I think that's fine. I think even in cancer care, um, the results could come back and they may actually indicate this patient based on this genetic finding is a candidate for a clinical trial that's going on right now. That may be good enough for, for patient and, and doctor as well. I don't think it's um, uh, complete, but it's certainly sufficient to, to move the ball forward. So I think we make slow progress in this area and then the interest gains and people can attain that knowledge. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. As you said, kind of give, give the right amount of information along with an ability for those who want to be able to dive deeper to go there. 
but believe it or not, we are already out of time. <laughs> um, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Joel Diamond, for a great conversation today. Thank you very much for having me. It's uh, always my pleasure. And thank you to everyone listening. Keep the dialogue going and connect with me at hashtag HCDEJURE. I'm Matt Fisher. Until next time.